I love the internet. I think the internet um, has made it possible for anyone to join or create any kind of group that they would like to, how normal or bizarre it might be. And there are many bizarre examples of groups out there on the internet. Oh, oh examples you say? Okay, I got a few. Uh, uh, these are, this is strange for how mundane it is. Carpets for airports. A place where users can share their pictures of the carpets and flooring in airports throughout the world. <laughs> People need some more time, some more things to do with their lives. The photos have info about the airport locations and reviews about the carpets themselves. I didn't know carpets were that interesting. Or what about this one? Icechewing.com. A testimonial from the website. And this is verbatim. I randomly found this forum, and I think it's comforting in a way to see so many people who eat ice as much as I do. I started when I was 14, just crunching on huge cubes straight from the tray. And it goes on and on and on about this guy's testimony about chewing ice. And I, I could go on. It would be actually really fun to do that. And I, I actually have a list of other ones on here that I've crossed out because I, I just can't talk about five more weird groups, <laughs> as amazing as that would be. But I think what it shows is when we created the internet, it's this amazing kind of technological thing, and uh, it shows that we as humans like, want to belong to something. There are any, any kind of forum, any kind of social media, it's all a level of belonging to something. We all want to be confident to in that thing that we belong to. We want to be confident in it. I mean, if, if we're new to a city, we want to have friends because we want to tell life we're doing this thing right. If we're, it, it's just, it, it gives us the confidence in that we're on the right track because all of us are wondering if we are. But in our normal state, without working, against, uh, without working against ourselves, we often find ourselves isolated. We're longing for that belonging because we don't have it. We don't feel confident. We feel condemned within ourselves. We don't have things right. And this is our, our passage today. Is good. We're going to learn how John is teaching us about how Jesus gives us that belonging that we need. And he does that because he brings us into his family. It's a real, actual, functional family with brothers and sisters who actually love each other. And through Jesus and being part of his family, we can be confident. We're not going to be perfect, of course. We're going to mess it up. But being in this family doesn't first depend on us. So our belonging doesn't depend on uh, you know, how well we chew the ice or not or our review of that particular carpet or not. It's about what Jesus has already done for us, and that's how we can be confident in what we're doing. It's a confidence based outside of ourselves. I mean, we're all so busy searching within for confidence. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? We, I think we need to spend a little time and look for confidence outside of us because that's a never-ending search within, and I don't think we're ever really going to find it. So the answer to finding the confidence and belonging that we need in life is to look somewhere else outside of ourselves, outside of what we see even, to something bigger, even beyond all of this, to Jesus himself. Now, some belonging and confidence can be found from these places. I'm sure icechewing.com offers some level of like connection with real humans in the world somehow. But real belonging and confidence for our souls, that really is found in Jesus. So we're going to talk about uh, three things. First, Isolation and condemnation. So some bad news first. Secondly, uh, belonging and confidence. And thirdly, God's gift. And the background of, of one John here. John loves using metaphors. Uh, our series has been life in the light, life in the dark. And he puts the, and these metaphors are in stark contrast to each other. So either you're in the light, either you're in the dark, either you're living in lies, or, or you're living in the truth. So he's kind of putting these things against each other. Um, and so that, that's just John's metaphor for life. And a life in the light means belonging and confidence for John. 
where life in the dark means isolation and condemnation. And John's trying to teach us what it looks like to live this life in the light that we really, we all want. And when you think about it, belonging and confidence, they kind of go hand in hand. Because you can't be confident in something that you don't really belong to, because then you know you're kind of faking it. And only when you fully belong to something can you truly be confident. And if you feel like you lack confidence in your life, or maybe your confidence isn't in the right place, a.k.a. all of us, John's writing to us. People who lack belonging are, are called isolated. And isolated, I think, is a normal experience in our culture today. And I've found most people don't call it isolation. They, they call it normal. So John here, uh, in this section here, is writing to the church, people like us, who get up on a Sunday morning to sing songs, to pray, to hear about the Bible. You know, to all of us, if we're feeling isolated, there will be a level of feeling condemned within ourselves. We're going to get to that in a moment. Not even necessarily before God, but within ourselves. And this is what John is writing. He's writing about an internal condemnation. It's like a judgment that you have within your heart isn't matching up to what is on the outside. So just as belonging and confidence go hand in hand, isolation and condemnation go hand in hand. So we're going to see how these things uh, relate to each other. But first, we're going to talk about some bad stuff. Isolation and condemnation, because that's where John starts. Uh, John starts in verse 19, uh, saying, basically asking, like, where do we belong? Verse 19 says, uh, this is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Uh, that verse... Um, Generally, our English translations are fantastic and amazing because they're done by people who are way smarter than all of us put together. But the way that the NIV translates that verse, uh, I, I don't think is helpful because I, I would love to preach about our hearts being at rest um, before God and in his presence, but I, I don't think that's actually what the original text says, the original Greek text says. So to, to maybe kind of reframe it a bit, um, I think what John is writing here in the, the original Greek is basically saying, um, this is how we have reassurance in our hearts before him. So it's different than having rest in our hearts separately, but having reassurance in our hearts before God. It's a little bit different. So maybe verse 19 would read better as this way. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we have the reassurance in our hearts. That's kind of his big focus. But then he starts going into condemnation and isolation. So he's going into like the, the bad stuff first. So what does isolation and condemnation look like? Well, our hearts condemn us, he says in that first part of verse 20. If our hearts condemn us. If we present an image of belonging and confidence, but deep down we know it's not true, we might fool others. We might even maybe fool ourselves for a bit of time, but we're not going to fool God. Saying we care about the environment or saying we care about the poor, but when opportunities come to help and we do nothing, you know, we say we're loving, but we're not that loving to people who are different than us or who don't match our certain political or ethical kind of agendas. I mean, that's hypocrisy, isn't it? And God knows everything. As John says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. So being greater, for God to be greater than our hearts is kind of two things. One, it's humbling because he's greater than who we are and we, we can't fool him because he knows where we're at. Uh, secondly, it's also encouraging because if our hearts do condemn us, if we, don't, if we feel like we're keeping up an image, not really living out the truth, then God is greater than that problem. He's greater than our hearts. And then we get to rest on him for that, and he's the one who can bring us out. So that means God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than our hypocrisy. He's greater than our condemnation that we might have within ourselves. I think that's really good news for the church because generally we can get by being quasi-hypocritical people, doing nice things on Sunday, and then the rest of the week kind of live just like everybody else. But God's greater than that. 
small way of living. If we live, it's easy to live in isolation and condemnation, but look like we have it all together on the outside. It's kind of like, uh, maybe you've done this, but surely you've seen it done, and that's how we'll talk about it. Running the water in a bathroom, but not washing your hands. You know, after you use it and you run the water, you're not actually washing your hands, which is insane because it takes the same amount of time to clean your hands. But for whatever reason, you just want to run the water and let everybody else know, I'm washing my hands now, but you don't actually wash. Have you ever seen anybody do that before? Yeah, and you, no one here has ever done that for sure. Um, you'd be like, I want everybody in this bathroom to know I'm clean, but I'm not going to actually clean my hands. And then you go away and about your daily life with condemned hands. That's kind of like what, what John's talking about here. If you're at the water already, just wash your hands. It doesn't need to be that way. Of course, it's easy talking about hand washing and you know, not transmitting germs and stuff like that. But it's much more scary to be honest with when we are feeling isolated, when we're feeling condemned within ourselves. It's much more scary to kind of talk about that and basically we have all these kind of biological and psychological things that are stopping us from doing that. We have to kind of overcome those things. But what's even more scary is is staying that way. It's scary to be able to share about those things, but it's even worse to be able to not share about those things and you stay that way. So that's a little bit about isolation and condemnation. Let's talk about uh, the good news here, belonging and confidence. So most of this section is about belonging and confidence. That's what we're going to spend our time on. Um, So if we belong and have confidence, uh, first, our hearts aren't going to condemn us. Confidence comes from a heart that doesn't condemn us. And by condemn, I'm talking about an internal disruption, like something doesn't match up inside. You know, with your words, you say one thing, and the way you live is another. And then not just confidence... John isn't talking about just confidence in general, like confidence to get a job or something like that. He's talking about confidence before a perfect, holy, all-powerful God that knows all things, including us. Would you like to have more confidence? I think probably all of us would, right? Sometimes we're not confident when we're before someone who's really good looking. Or sometimes we're not confident when we're, um, when we're overwhelmed with like a potential role or a potential job. Or if we're in the presence of someone who's really powerful. This confidence that John is talking about is one that stands in front of the most powerful, most beautiful, most who has it all together being the universe has ever known. That's a different kind of confidence. It's more than just, it's something different than just more. It's a whole different kind. And the way we get there, the way we get to that kind of confidence is through a heart that doesn't condemn us. We want to get to that kind of confidence and the pathway is through a heart that doesn't condemn us. It means we're same on the outside as we are deep down below. The deepest parts of us, our hearts, the thing that controls our being, our desires, our motives, that matches with what's on the outside. How we live, how we speak, what we care about, what we sacrifice for. This kind of purity of heart, this kind of confidence can only happen by a change through Jesus. Because without that, we can't help but be hypocrites of the worst type. I mean, I would love to live as free as I really want to. I would love to live as someone who doesn't feel like a hypocrite. And with belonging and confidence, with this kind of uh, internal heart that doesn't have the condemnation, um, comes prayer. Uh, In verse 22, um, John writes, and and we receive from him anything we ask. So there's a level of asking, of, of prayer that comes from this belonging and confidence. If God is the most holy, the most powerful, the creator, the king of everything, and the king of all creation, the one who controls our breaths, our lives, everything, who are we? Who are we to come before this God? Our biggest 
possible things that could be going on in our life surely are super small to God who's controlling cosmically everything. Even if it's something that feels completely dire to us, how small is that to God? And who are we to come to God with, that, with our problems? Who can disturb the king? The only one who can disturb a king for problems as small as ours is a child. Because the child belongs to a family, and the child has confidence in the father's love for her. So if we belong, and we do, and if we have confidence, and we have, that should display itself through prayer. Because even though we know God's the king, we know he's also the good, good father that we just sang about. So that means we should take everything to God. We belong to him. We have confidence before him. He wants, to ask, he wants us to ask him for our needs. And he always answers. He, he always answers. It may not always be an answer that you like. It may not always be something that you thought you were asking him for originally. But our father is always attentive to our needs. Now it says that we receive from him anything we ask. And that can easily be mistaken for like, oh, that means if I want it, then I'll just ask for it and I'll get it. Because anything I want, I'm going to get but my bank balance is still kind of, you know, not where I really want it to be, God. What's the deal? I think a false way of understanding this verse is kind of treating God like a spiritual vending machine or some kind of spiritual sugar daddy, kind of like, oh, God, uh, I want this new car. Can you get it for me? Okay, thanks, bye. And then just kind of do your own thing. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's not like just asking God for what you want first. Because first, we, we so easily trade the stuff that God gives for God himself. And God doesn't want to live us, live, have us live in that small way. And sometimes we pray for our life to be ordered in such a way that we won't have to live trusting God. Like the things that we pray for are often the things that cause us to go to God the most to begin with. I mean, we were stuck in America for 13 months, homeless, like moving every two or three weeks. That was horrible. We felt like God wasn't answering our prayer. And I wish he would have answered it like immediately so we could come back to our home here in England. But he didn't. We had to travel around for all that time. But that caused us to go to God more than we would have normally. It wasn't that he wasn't answering us. He was answering us in a way that we didn't really like at the moment. Often our prayers are, God, if you just get me this, whatever it is, 10% more money, 10% more time, 10% less people who are annoying in your life, whatever the thing might be. But the lack of that thing, that, that, the thing that you're praying for, often is what God is using, that very thing itself, to draw you to himself. Sometimes God uses us not getting what we want to want him all the more. And prayer is first and foremost a way to grow in our relationship with God, not in a way to get stuff we want. Also, belonging to God means our desires aren't our own. Our desires belong to God. They're not our own anymore. That means his desires are ours. And we will want to pray. We will want to pray for what he wants and before what we want. I mean, that's hard because I can't say that's true in my life 100% of the time. If I'm lucky, it's 50% of the time. But this is the one we get to speak to, the one who knows everything, the one who has the power to do anything, and the one who's always working for our good. If we knew a person like that existed and was walking around, like sitting here, this person here knows everything, uh, has more power to control everything, and is out for my good all the time, I would be harassing that person with texts. I would be like, talk, like knocking on his door all the time. I'd be calling him, hey, I need this, or what do you think about this? I would just be like obsessively talking to this person because I would trust him. And that person would do all the, stuff for, all, the, all the stuff that I need to get done. I mean, why wouldn't we talk to God? When was the last time, I mean, when was the last time you spent like an hour in prayer? It might feel like a marathon. Has that ever happened? Imagine if you were married to someone and you never spent an hour in conversation all at once. That'd be kind of ridiculous. Now, 
I'm not saying, if, you, if you've never prayed before, I'm not saying, all right, so now start praying for an hour. It might just be like, what is the next small step for you in your own prayer life? It might just be five minutes. But it is ridiculous for us to not kind of live lives of prayer if God is who he says he is. Now that said, um, we should still pray for the things that we need. It's not that we shouldn't pray for those things. I mean, some people need housing. Uh, we must pray for that as a family together. Some people need jobs. There are many needs, and we should bring them all to God with the belonging and confidence that a child has. I think if we don't pray, I thought probably there's probably really two main reasons that we don't pray. One is we don't feel like we belong or are confident before God. Basically, we don't feel like we're good enough. And that can be because maybe you committed some sin that you're ashamed about that day, or there are lives that, that the evil one is using to keep you from God's goodness. You know, but never doubt the worth that you have before the God who made you. He cares more about you than you do about yourself. He loves you more than you do about yourself. There's nothing that God will do that will ever hold you back from being more than who he made you to be. He's the best father we can imagine. We may not always understand why he does the things that he does. I don't understand it half the time. But if it's true for a child and a father on earth, like when I tell Colin to do stuff, he doesn't know why probably most of the time. But surely it's good for him to follow through in the ways I'm telling him to work. If that's true, it's all the more true if God is a heavenly father and we're here on earth. So the first one is maybe we don't feel like we belong or are confident. We doubt that, so we don't pray. The second one is if we, we find our uh, belonging confidence elsewhere, we're just not going to pray. If we have a problem with money and we find our belonging and, and, and confidence in, in our jobs or our own ability, we're just going to work more. We're going to spend more time. We're going to worry more. Family, friends, even the church, those can all be substitutes for God himself. We can try and contort all these really good things into ultimate things, and they become bad things. And if our confidence and our well-being comes from our job, we're not going to pray. We're just going to work more and be more anxious. Belonging and confidence before God produces a rich prayer life. And that means you can start whenever you want to. You don't even need to buy into the idea of God or Jesus yet. Maybe you're even wondering if he exists. But if you pray, I dare you to do that because you might find someone might be there. So I know I hammered a lot on, on prayer um, because I think that's like a big part for where we are as a church at the moment. Um, I think we can all grow, myself included, in our prayer life. Um, but uh, lastly, a life of belonging confidence uh, means a life aligned with God, which is basically obedience. Belonging and confidence comes from a life aligned with God. Verse 24 says, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. So these things kind of like feed into each other. The more we align with God in our lives, the more we feel that belonging and confidence that we all want. How can we expect to feel like we belong or, or are confident if our lives kind of aren't aligned with how God has told us to live? Surely that would be a problem at some point. If we're not generous and are hoarding money all the time to ourselves, we'll get the money and the time, but that's it. That's what you get. We'll miss out on belonging. We'll miss out on confidence. Now, God is pleased when we listen to what he says. He knows what's best for us. And this is a very kind of countercultural thing to say that we actually don't know what's best for us because everything everywhere tells you, you know what's best for you. And it's the best thing in the world if you have the freedom to sort that out yourself. And since we're obsessed with our own personal freedom, none of us can concede with the idea that we don't know what we're doing or that we don't know what's best for us. To say that, that's a very countercultural thing. In order to live how we want to all the time, which is what we want to do, that requires us to find meaning of it all within ourselves. And we just don't have the power to do that. That's an anxious search. And it's a burden to bear. It ends up being an anxious, never-ending search because 
all of our answers aren't within ourselves. Wherever we are with Jesus and what we think of him and his family or whatever you kind of think about it, surely we must grant that there exists some kind of meaning outside of us. Or are we really that self-centered that it is all inside of us? Now, this is so much more than just for showing up for a thing a couple hours a week, right? Like our, our worship gatherings are great and, and we need it and they're important, but this is, this is not the end goal of Christianity, just one part. It's a vital part, but it's not the whole. As Christians, we believe that we don't have it together, and left to ourselves, we're going to undo everything and, and break everything. So we need to surrender to something bigger. And God has made it clear what it means to align our lives with his. Now, often I think, or I know my default mode of thinking of God's commandments for us, the way he tells us we ought to live, is something that's going to be repressive or, or oppressive, something that's going to hold me back from doing what I really want to do. And that means I'm going to have like a lesser life for it. Basically, it's like FOMO, like fear of missing out of all these other kind of things I could possibly do. Christianity is just like an oppressive system, right? It's just the opiate of the masses. So then how does John describe this so-called oppressive way to live? Well, verse 23, he says, and this is his command. Okay, so here's the command. It must be something really hard and horrible. What is it? To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commands us. That doesn't sound that bad. Uh, to trust Jesus and to love others? Oh, that sounds horrible. That's, who's going to ever sign up for that? Of course, it's simple written like that, but it's not always easy to follow through. And rarely are we in the position of not knowing what to do, especially as a church. Our problem isn't not knowing what to do. Our problem is actually following through with what we already know. So what does trusting Jesus look like? Well, where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your worry? Where do you spend your money? Worry and anxiety come from isolation and condemnation. They do not come from the Father. Belonging and confidence comes from the Father. I mean, when a child has loving parents, things could be difficult. The, the family could be going through hard times. But if the, if the child understands the love that the parents have for them, the child still feels secure. The child still feels confident. Because the child believes that the parents are going to figure it out, and the parents have the child's best wishes. So that's what trusting Jesus looks like, going through hard times and actually believing that he has all things together. Now, what does loving each other look like? Well, it includes Sunday, but it's more than this. I mean, if, if the people of God are the people that God has chosen to remake this world, to show like a new way of living, surely it's more than an event that we have once a week, right? Please, God, let that be so. This is not the end. I mean, I love you guys, and this is great, and we'll continue to do this. But Christianity is so much better and more than just this by itself. If this is all we're doing, we're missing out. Surely it's more than that. Being present for each other, and not just on Sunday, is a necessity of what it means to be a family. So when people are in hard times, when people need help, or when you just want to hang out because you actually enjoy the other person, that's crazy, I know, you can actually do that. And if we're all children of the same dad, we're family. How are we belonging to the family? If other people have needs, how are we meeting those needs? Nobody in here should be without something that someone else has to give. That should just be the reality. You know, I've heard that good functional families work that way. I don't know from experience because... Uh, my dad falsely accused me of a crime so he'd get less prison time. So you can, my family's a bit messed up. Um, but a real functional family is one that does the opposite, is one that actually looks out for each other and cares for each other, often at the expense of themselves. I mean, telling Colin to not use an ink stamp on his tongue, yes, we've had to do that, is actually for his own good. Now, he doesn't like it because he wants to stamp his tongue. He doesn't understand. I want to stamp my tongue all day, Dad. But he also knows that we love him, and we actually might know better so he says, okay, dad, doesn't stamp his tongue. Uh, that's on a good day. Um, in a good functional family, even when someone disagrees with you, offends you, 
or you, or you know at the root that they're for you. And they might even know better. And when you go off and do your own thing and use that ink stamp on your tongue anyway, a good functional family makes room for forgiveness. And that's what it's like with us and God. When he tells us how we're supposed to love others who are different than us, how we treat our own sexuality, how we treat people who identify with different sexuality or gender identities, what we do with our money, what we do with power, how are we supposed to love people well? We know, God has told us. It's not, it's not easy, but it's not a mystery. And we say, okay, Dad, on a good day anyway. So John is telling us this. If we want belonging and confidence in this life, our lives must align with God's. Otherwise, we're going to experience isolation and internal judgment. Now, if we're presented with the question, would you like to live isolated and condemned or with confidence and belonging? Of course, everyone's going to say this. But how then do we always end up over here? No one says I want to be isolated. But we end up there. I think of our lives left to ourselves, we're always going to drift away from where God wants us to be. We all drift out to the sea by ourselves lost. So this is the part where everything else out there, everyone else out there, uh, every other self-help system will say, okay, so if you find yourself here, then just belong more and have more confidence. Just sort it out, do it, have more of that. I mean, that sounds okay, it's not horrible advice. The problem is that we just can't do it because some days we don't feel it. Some days our hearts are broken. So we learn to fake it and settle for less. But here's what I want. I don't want to fake it. I don't want to settle. And I want to live with belonging and confidence. Is it possible for all those three things to happen all at once? Wouldn't it be great if it was? Now, okay, we talked about these two ways of living. And maybe as I've been speaking, you've been thinking of where you might feel isolated or condemned or where you might feel belonging and confidence. And then when I ask you tomorrow, you're going to have a whole different set of reactions and feelings. We don't want to ground our belonging in how we're feeling, right? Because that's a bad way to live, because we're up and we're down. Or even our, in our own perception of how we're doing. We're not always the best judges of our own character. So we all drift, we're all up and down, we're all living this way, and really like, living in this way of belonging and confidence isn't possible on our own terms. So what's the deal, John? Like, are you just telling us to do something that's impossible, holding out a carrot we'll never get? Well, this is the last part of the last verse of verse 24 that John brings us to. Uh, This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. We know that God lives in us by the spirit that he gave us. So if you want belonging and confidence, you really want to experience it and live in it, it doesn't come from us first, it comes from God. God's gift to us is God himself, the Holy Spirit. And verse 24 talks about this mutual living, God in us and us in God. Ah, There it is. So verse 24 talks about God living in us and us living in him, keeping God's commands. But even then, I don't even keep those commands. I'm not perfect. Is John saying I must keep these commands first before belonging? No, because we've been given the spirit, nothing of our own. And while it's important for our lives to be aligned with God in every way, aligning aligning our lives with God isn't first what gives us belonging and confidence. We have belonging confidence first, and then we can align our lives with God. We've been given the gift of the Spirit first. What role does someone who accepts a gift have in in the gift? Nothing. They just accept it. They have open hands. It's all on the giver. And it's important that that we don't switch this to, that first we have belonging confidence through the power of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, and then we can live out what that means in our lives. If we switch the two, that becomes religion, and it becomes a horrible thing, and we end up isolated and condemned. But if we 
do it the way that the Bible says. We've been given this, and we can live it out. That, that brings something else. That brings freedom. That brings joy. So God is the one who's giving the gift, the gift of himself, this gift of a new heart, one that isn't isolated or condemned, one that can truly live the way we want to. Sure, we're going to mess up, but when we do it, we don't like it anymore. We don't want to live that way anymore. We feel some kind of wrong thing inside of us. We know it's not really who we are because through the Spirit, we've been created as something new because now we belong. Now we have confidence. And more than that, we get to be a part of other people belonging, of other people having confidence. I mean, what do we do for this? This sounds like the most amazing thing ever. We can be part of a group of people that is helping other people experience a belonging and a confidence that can never be taken away from them. Well, that's what we get to be a part of. That's amazing. How in the world did this happen? There's nothing for us to do because Jesus has already done it. Jesus has experienced, in our case, for our case, the worst isolation. He was living a perfect life with belonging in the Trinity. And because he saw us here on earth in our, in our isolation, in our condemnation, he came down to earth. And the one who created the world is now walking in the world. And these people he came to save, they didn't love him. They didn't get him. They didn't particularly like him. They put him to death. He lived day in, day out, somewhat mundane existence, wandering around, teaching people who never really got it. And those with the power, the religious types and the political types, they got together and they killed him. They took him outside the city to be tortured and killed like a criminal of the day. And Jesus let them kill him because he knew this was the only way. He knew that on the cross, he died. None of his followers were standing by him. He was out there by the city by himself. He knew that that was what had to be done so that we would never experience that kind of isolation. And Jesus also took on all the condemnation, not just the insults and lack of love during his life, but in his death, the reason he willingly died was to put to death isolation forever, to put to death condemnation forever. So Jesus took our isolation, our condemnation that we rightly deserve through the gift of his death. The gift of his life gives us the belonging and the confidence that we need. And that's what the gift of the Spirit is about. It's a new standing before our Father that gives us belonging and confidence before a holy and perfect and all-powerful being. And it's out of that radically generous act from God that we live gen different lives. Because since we now we have new hearts, our hearts don't condemn us. We might make mistakes, yeah, but we always can come back. Since we now have a new father, we pray in confidence. And we can be aligned with God in our lives as a consequence of that. So when we eat this bread and drink this wine, we know that our lives have been changed. Because through Jesus' death, we will not experience the same kind of death. And the blood that he poured out, all the isolation and condemnation he took on for us, now we get to drink a cup of life, one that brings belonging, one that brings confidence, and not just for ourselves individually, but we get to be part of a new family that gets to do this together. If you haven't yet experienced this gift of the Spirit that John's talking about, that we've been talking about, um, this table isn't for you yet. It might be in the future, but for now, maybe you can talk about it to God, which is called prayer, and ask him if all this is actually real, what we just said. For anyone who's experienced this gift of the Spirit, anyone, uh, you don't have to be an official part of Redeemer. You can come up here, you can eat and drink with us. Um, because we're all part of the same family. We're all equal before the Lord. We can eat and drink together as we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. Now, if maybe you've never done this before and, and you feel like you want to be part of this family, this could be your first step. Whether it's your first step or your million, millionth step, it's open for all who want 
new life. Through Jesus, we're saved from our isolation and condemnation, and we've been given belonging and confidence because of the gift of the Spirit. Let me pray.